Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or words blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, creation. to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what He promises, and the so clever we behold his endeavors unfold the greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told the christian life is a We're people who will die without God's word. Left to ourselves, we will perish forever. So expositional preaching is what God has given us to tell us the truth about himself and ourselves, to tell us the gospel. Expositional preaching is critical when it comes to being a faithful pastor, when it comes to being uh, a faithful leader of God's people. Uh, As pastors, we're called to not just preach, but to preach God's word, to preach the gospel. Expositional preaching is making the point of a passage of scripture the point of your message. Making the point of the biblical text the point of the sermon. It's exposing God's word to God's people. Well, I don't have a mandate to preach what I want to preach. I have a mandate from God to preach his word. And and the best way to do that, I think the most faithful way to preach the scriptures is to preach them expositions, to expound what God has already said to his people. Right there in one of his last letters to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Uh, in fact, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you know, who is, is going to appear, do this. So before you do anything else, Timothy, do this. Preach the word. It helps people to actually understand the Bible for themselves. They can actually get from the text exactly what the text says. And as a result, they learn to read the Bible for themselves.
is deriving uh, the meaning of the text and giving it to the people as a banquet, as a, as a great supper on which to feed. Uh, for we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And his exposition, preach, exposition preaching that helps us give the people every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the end of the day, I want my people reliant upon God's word, not upon my cleverness, not upon my personality, not upon uh, what they might think are particularly witty or insightful ways that I may communicate, but upon the word itself. And that's what will sustain their soul. I just want to start off by saying that this was not a tempest in a teapot. Chiseled into the stone of the Reformation wall are the Latin words post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. Luther was convinced that the gospel itself had fallen into darkness and obscurity in the late Middle Ages. The Reformation, from his perspective, was the recapturing and recovering of nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel is so plain in Scripture that a child can understand it. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy. But beyond the general ecclesiastical application there, Luther by extension would be saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which you stand or fall, the article upon which I stand or fall. Again, why? Because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that, that, that doesn't say that salvation is by works. And, note, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. Universe, all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. 
One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful, much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist.
Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries in winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy, has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, well, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. Southern Evangelical Seminary presents The Defense Never Rests, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, coming to Charlotte, North Carolina, October 13th through 15th, 2016. Come be equipped to defend the faith. This three-day event features over 100 sessions from more than 50 speakers, including many of the world's top Christian thinkers, such as Lee Strobel, author of many books, including The Case for Christ. Jay Sekula, Chief Counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, SES co-founder Norman Geisler, and SES President Richard Lance, veteran apologist Josh McDowell, Frank Turek, Jay Warner Wallace, SES professors, and many more. Join us for America's largest and longest-running apologetics conference. Thursday is a dedicated day for women only. Register now and save. It's time to get off the sidelines and get into the game. The defense never rests. To learn more, visit SES.edu. Southern Evangelical Seminary, on campus, online, on mission.
Hello? Having talked about expositional preaching, I don't want people to think it doesn't matter what you're actually saying, that the only thing that matters is that you're opening the Bible, reading it, and claiming you're explaining it. No, I want to kind of nail down the product as well. I want to make sure that what you're saying is actually consistent with what is in the Bible. Because the Bible has very specific content. God speaks through his word to reveal himself to us. And that means we can get it wrong. So in our preaching and in our teaching in our churches, we want to make sure and get it right. The term biblical theology can be used in two ways. Either theology that's biblical, what some people sometimes call systematic theology, or uh, biblical theology, which is a, a method of Hello? studying the scriptures as one story culminating in the person and work of Christ. God is... Hello? Uh, Dr. Lehman there. Can you can you hear me okay? Okay, now I can hear you. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. All right. I see I see what the uh what the issue was now. I apologize about that. That's all right. <laughs> I gave can, you can you hear me all right? I I can. I can I can hear you great. I had uh uh oh, yeah, I think I had messed up on on that. I apologize about that. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, introduce introduce you here. Um, Dr. Jonathan Lehman is the editorial director for Nine Marks, which is a global ministry that exists to equip uh, church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. Uh, after doing uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, uh, Jonathan began his career in journalism, where he worked as an editor for an international economics magazine in Washington, D.C. Since his call to ministry, Jonathan has earned a Master of Divinity and a Ph.D. in theology uh, and has worked as an interim pastor and currently serves uh, as an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. He's also uh, an adjunct press professor at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and the Reformed Theological Seminary. So, oh, Dr. Lehman, it's really, really great to have you. It's really an honor to have you. Go ahead. I'm really grateful, grateful to be having the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, kind of maybe if you could just talk a, talk a minute about uh, Nine Marks and what is the ministry of Nine Marks? Well, as you just said, we're a ministry for church leaders. We're trying to equip them with a biblical vision and practical resources. You, you said that. Uh, in, in many ways, uh, Nine Marks is looking at the landscape of evangelical churches, noticing the, the bent toward pragmatism, the assumption that the Bible doesn't speak to how we uh, think about church, and trying to say, hey, actually, the Bible does speak to what it means to be a church and how to do church, and let's just open the Bible and, 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 and listen. Um, certainly right. there's a place, to, a place to think in categories of prudence, categories of, of, of what's pragmatic, what works. There, there's a place for that. But we've got to start with Scripture, and that's, that's our burden at Nine Marks. Yeah, it's, it's been such a great ministry. It's, it's just been, been something that has really uh, helped me, benefited me. Uh, I know uh, as a 
as a pastoral intern. Uh, my pastor had me read all the nine marked books. I wasn't real familiar with them before, and uh, just a, a great, robust uh, view from well, looking at all of all of the different uh, nine marks. So maybe uh, great. Sounds, like, sounds just, like a white pastor. Through. <laughs> yeah, well, he'll appreciate you. I'm sure he's listening. He'll appreciate you saying that. <laughs> uh, so, what is what is the church? I mean, we hear hear a lot about the church, uh, and there's some different definitions. What what is a church? So, are you talking, are you talking local church or universal church? Maybe you could talk How a little bit about both, because that's. That, that's part of the part of the um, I think confusion. Maybe you could talk a little bit about both. Yeah, sure. I mean, the universal church is the collection of all Christians in all times and all places who are uh, who will gather at the end of history, and in some sense are gathered now in heaven. If you think of Hebrews twelve, we've gathered in the heavenly city. It says, uh, but, but traditionally we just define the universal church as all Christians everywhere in all times. Okay. Well, where is the church on earth? Where do we see it? Answer, in local churches. And um, to define a local church, I would just say it's a group of Christians. So not non-Christians, but a group of Christians who together identify as followers of Jesus through gathering in his name, preaching the gospel, and celebrating the ordinances. So you have several components. You have Christians gathered, uh, identified as followers of Jesus, preaching the gospel, and celebrating the ordinances. That, that since the Reformation, is, is how we've understood what a local church is. I could talk at length uh, about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, we could use various biblical metaphors to think about it, but, but in a sense, that's, that's where we know you have a, a, the church on earth, is where you have a gathering of Christians who identify as followers of Jesus from the preaching the gospel and the celebration, celebrating of the ordinances. Okay, so what is just curious, and I think I I, I listened to uh, one of your discussions um, before on Moody Radio. Uh, what what is your your view of like some of the home churches? And um, it, it seems to be sometimes in that crowd, not always, but sometimes in that crowd, there's almost the anti almost the anti church um, role of the church. What's your view of of the house churches, and what are some ways that they're done? Rightly. Yeah, sure. I can't claim to be an expert on the house church movement, so I'm reluctant to speak about it broadly. I I can say I don't really care where a church gathers, if it's a building, Mm -hmm. if it's under a tree, if it's if it's uh, in a house. Uh, I mean, certainly in the New Testament, you have uh, the church in Corinth, for instance, seemingly meeting in Chloe's house. Many of the churches in the, in the New Testament did meet in houses. So, if, if by house church you just mean they meet in a house, I got no problem with it at all. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, if, but but to be a church, they they have to be open to baptizing anybody who who would come and make a credible profession of faith, and they have to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So if that's what they're doing, I, I, I don't have a problem with it. If there's other particular distinctives that you have in mind uh, with the house church movement, I would, I, would, I would just have to consider those on a case-by-case basis. But that, that's where I feel like I'm running into ignorance here. I, I just don't know. Sure, 
Sure. And uh, just curious, would would um, most like Presbyterians and others um, agree with the kind of the definition of the of the church you gave there of the local church? Yeah, they would. Um, I think of uh, mostly. Uh, think of think of the thirty nine articles, the Anglican thirty nine articles. I mean, they're, they're yeah, they say it's a it's a congregation. The word they use is congregation. I think gathering, same, same idea though, a congregation okay. of 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 of, uh, of Christians. Now they would add, and their children. A Presbyterian in England would say a congregation or a gathering of, of believers and their children for the preaching of the gospel okay. and the celebration of the ordinances. So that's where they would modify it slightly, because of course children they would they would understand once baptized, uh, or what they call baptism. Uh, uh, I personally wouldn't. I'd say those babies got wet. <laughs> But, but once in, in the in the Presbyterian or Anglican conception, once that little baby is sprinkled on, uh, it is now a member of the covenant community, and so therefore a part of the church. That, that's where we, as I as a Baptist, would would disagree. But right. Otherwise, okay. Yeah, it's very Great. Close. We're very close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is a church member? Uh, a church member is somebody who has been affirmed as a uh, professing believer in the church and whom the church affirms as uh, a, a Christian and who the church also is, uh, agrees to oversee um, uh, in, in, in the course of their discipleship. So a slightly more careful uh, definition I give to it in my little book, Understanding the Congregation's Authority, I say, a, a church membership is a covenant between believers whereby they affirm one another's profession of faith through the ordinances and agree to oversee one another's discipleship to Christ. So if you and I were to be members of a church together, we, we would covenant together to affirm one another's profession of faith through the ordinances, and we would be agreeing to Oversee, give oversight to one another's discipleship to Christ. Wow. Does that does that make sense? That, yeah, I love that. That's 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 very good stuff. Um, I, I've, I've noticed a lot of churches don't really necessarily practice um, church membership, and uh, just little, I guess, some question for you is is um, why. Why church membership? Um, is is church membership something that you can take or leave, or is it something that churches really should um, practice and, and something all all churches should do? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first question we need to ask as Christians is 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 it in the Bible? So if if I'm giving you something that's in the Bible, that's not in the Bible, then then we probably shouldn't practice it. But if it is in the Bible, then then we should practice it. And there I would just say, well, very briefly, let's look at passages like Matthew 18, where it says, uh, you know, if you bring a charge against someone and tell it to the church, and if he doesn't leave, uh, listen to the church, treat him as you would a, a, an unbeliever. Or 1 Corinthians 5, where it says to remove, verse 2 says to remove this person, and verse, I'm sorry, it's verse 2, and then verse 5 says hand him over. Um, um, and other, many other passages we could look at where the, clearly the church is removing somebody from something, what, what is it they're removing them from? Well, seemingly association in the church. Uh, you get the same idea right. in Second Corinthians six, where it says, "Come out, be separate." For what fellowship is light with darkness? What what a, 
what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What fellowship or accord does Christ have with Belial? In other words, Paul is telling the Corinthians, like, look, do not associate with these false teachers. Do not associate with people who claim to be Christians but but, but are darkness. In other words, he's conceiving of um, certain people who have marked, marked themselves off, identified together as believers. Hey, hey, planet Earth, where do we find the Christians? Well, we know where the Christians are because they're the ones who have affirmed one another as followers of the way or citizens of the kingdom or members of the body, right? So do we need to practice that? Yeah, we need to practice that as, as, as a matter of identifying ourselves as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ together. And here's here's lots of reasons people don't practice it or they're afraid to practice it. Well, one, you know, they've seen bad examples of it. And, you know, if you've been in an abusive marriage, yeah. I can understand why you don't want to jump back into a marriage again. You're just saying, hey, let's just cohabitate. That, that, that's wrong, but I, but I understand it. Um, there's a lot of bad examples of church membership. And uh, so, the, again, the question is, what is, what is b- biblical church membership? Another reason people are reluctant to practice it, especially in the individualistic West, and, and frankly, this has never been an issue until, until just recently. Nobody was even asking this question. It was just a foregone conclusion you'd be united in some form or fashion to a, to a local church, uh, is because we don't like the idea of authority. And yeah. what I'm arguing as church membership does involve an exercise of authority, an authority that's outside of me. It's saying that this gathering of people have an authority – to affirm me as a Christian or not, to name me as a Christian. I didn't say to make me a Christian. I just said <laughs> right. to identify yeah. me as. And that's what we do through baptism. That's what we do through the Lord's Supper. So so think of think of what a judge does. A judge does not make a person innocent or guilty. They don't make the law what the law is. They simply say, okay, looking at the law, I assess, judge, and declare this person to be innocent or or guilty, right? Um, uh, uh, an image I sometimes use is when I was living in Brussels, Belgium, uh, and my passport expired. I went down to the U.S. Embassy, US embassy there in, in Brussels to get a new passport. So I walked into the embassy. They looked at my data, you know, looked at my passport. They looked at the computer. They kind of, you know, did whatever they did, and, and gave me a new passport. And did the U.S. Embassy make me a U.S. citizen on that day? Well, no, I, I was already a citizen by birth. Uh, did the U.S. Embassy have an authority to declare me a citizen that I, as an individual right. U.S. citizen, do not possess? Yes, they do. They do have that authority. I can't just show up at the airport and say, ah, trust me, I'm a citizen. You know, <laughs> you know board, right. borders and customs, they'd say, well – Maybe you are. You just, you just don't have the authority to declare that. We need some documentation, please. Well, what the lo- local church has the authority to do through baptism of the Lord's Supper is to formally recognize people as believers. And that that claim right there that I just gave, that the church has this authority that we as believers don't, I, I think that goes against our kind of cultural conditioning. We don't We don't like that idea. Christians in the past have taken it for granted. Today you have to make an argument for it. Wow. And it just seems, you know, as you're talking, it's just there's a lot of safety in, in that, right? There's, uh, 
what would you say are some of the reasons that God has has ordained that and and uh, has done that? What what are some of the the practical reasons made for church membership? Yeah, sure. Uh, let, let, let me name um, several. One for the sake of identification. Two for the sake of the assurance of our of our of our salvation. And the three, I would say, for the sake of evangelism, these all relate together: identification, assurance, and evangelism. Uh, identification. Think about how did you know who the people of Israel were? Well, they were they were circumcised and they practiced the Sabbath. Those were the identifying markers, right? That's who you knew Israel was. And at one point, they lived in a land. At one point, they were, they were placed in a land, right? Okay, the, the, the people of Israel are. Are those people who live in that land who have been circumcised and practiced the Sabbath, the children of the covenant? Well, how do you exercise border patrol in a nation, in a, in a kingdom with no borders? How do you know who the quote unquote we of Christianity are? Or think about it from the standpoint of the new covenant promises. Uh, God says, um, I'll place my heart within them, and they will keep my law, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the new covenant promise. Well, the, the Spirit's work in our heart's invisible. So how do, you, how do you make the invisible new covenant visible? Absolutely. Right. Through baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is, which is what are signs of church membership. Um, it's, it's, it's the people who are mem- baptized, Lord's Supper, receiving members of a church, that we know who the we of Christianity, uh, of, of Christ's people on planet Earth, are. Okay, so number one, identification. Number two, for assurance, um, how do how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm one of them? Well, one way is I have a group of people who uh, who affirm me and say, "Yeah, Jonathan, your your life and your profession seem to match." Uh, who who do you say that I Jesus is? I say he's the Christ. He's the Son of the Living God, like Peter says to to Jesus, and he died and born again, or, or died and resurrected mm-hmm. for the forgiveness of sins. And they welcome me in, and yeah, your life, you seem to be repenting of your sin. We're going to, uh, what must we do to believe, they say to Peter? He says, repent, baptize, and it says 3,000 were added to their number that day. So I'm assured of my standing in the faith through my church membership. And then third, for the sake of evangelism, um, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say to you, I, I, I never knew you. Uh, because these are people who, who were building their lives on sand and not on the rock, and they weren't doing Deeds in keeping with repentance, to use Jesus' language. Um, if if we let the quote unquote church fill up with hypocrites and heretics, um, we're gonna we're gonna hurt the name of Jesus. The church will look no different than the world, and th- so it's through a disciplined membership uh, that brings up the category of church discipline. It's through a disciplined membership that the church is marked off from the world and and shown to be something to, something distinct. And that actually, I, I would say, serves the purposes of evangelism. Second Corinthians six, where we're called to come out and be separate, is right next to Second Corinthians five, where we're told that we have a message of reconciliation. Um, Mark Dever sometimes says, that, "Look, if you have a known." Adulterer in your choir, you might as well cancel your Tuesday night evangelism program. Why would I join wow. your church? You guys are just yeah. like us. There's no difference. <laughs> You're just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, in many churches, right. that is the case. But if you have a regenerate, 
and disciplined membership of people who are living by grace and practicing forgiveness for one another and pursuing holiness, it's going to look like an alternative and distinct society, a society where people are characterized by righteousness and justice and love and forgiveness, and that should be attractive to the world so that even though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and give praise to God in heaven. Amen. Very good. A lot, of, a lot of excellent reasons. I think sometimes we just we haven't even thought about, but I guess we should trust that the all-wise, uh, infinitely wise triune God knows what he's doing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what are what are the standards, I guess, for for church membership? Uh, repentance, faith, baptism, uh, going to all nations, making disciples. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to do everything God commanded. So, so, so the. First requirement in that sense, formally, institutionally, you might say, is baptism. You have to be baptized. Um, but also we're talking about people who repent and believe. And so, again, I, I quoted to you at, uh, Acts 2, 37 a second ago, and he said again, uh, you know, Peter preaches about this Christ who's been re- crucified and then resurrected, and the people say, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. And his idea of repentance there is not divorced from the idea of faith, repent and believe. So we repent and believe, and we're baptized. And um, just, uh, I would say that's that's who we're looking to recognize as church members. Um, it's not about uh, getting your act cleaned up. Uh, if you ever feel like, I shouldn't go to church because I'm not good enough, or this was a bad week, then... Yeah, you shouldn't go to church because you have the wrong idea of what church is. No, you go to church not based on your righteousness. You go to church based on Christ's righteousness. So um, I'd rather you coming to church saying, man, I had a tough week, and I, I, I was impatient with my kids, and I uh, uh, was, was lustful in my heart, and oh, my goodness, I need the grace of God. I'd rather that person come to church than the person who says uh, – you know, I had a great week. I was, I was, I read my Bible. I was, uh, I was always patient, always self-control. I had a really good week. Um, I'm a righteous person. I should go to church. No, 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 no. You're, you're a Pharisee, right? Mm. Right. So, so we, we come, we come to church not based on our righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ. Now, would the Anglican and Presbyterian, our, our Anglican and Presbyterian friends, would they? Um, would they would they hold to that same view as far as church membership, repentance and baptism? Is that what it would, or how would they? Just curious how they would do that. Yes, they would say the same thing entirely. They would have a different definition of baptism. At least uh, they they would have a uh, uh, they they would agree with the um, baptism of a believer, but they would also include the baptism of infants. So, but otherwise, yes, they, they would, uh, every every tradition would say, every Protestant tradition would say, repentance, faith, and baptism. Though again, we disagree slightly on what baptism means. 
Right, right. Or in colors. Very good. Um, let's see, um, so this is this is one that uh, I think maybe just modern day American Christianity sometimes kicks against. But this idea of uh, how does a Christian submit to the church? It just it seems like uh, submission to the church or submission to elders is is sometimes frowned upon. It's not looked upon very very good these days. Yeah, sure. Uh, I have my my first book is called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love: Reintroducing the Doctrines of Church Membership and Discipline. And in the last chapter, I I, I give eight different ways that we we submit to churches. Uh, we submit pu- publicly. That is to say, we sign the bottom line. We we, we join. Right. I say. Hey, I'm with Jesus, and I do that by associating myself with Jesus' embassy on planet Earth. We submit ourselves physically, which we do by Hebrews 10.25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we show up, right? There I am, physically there. We submit ourselves socially. That is to say, we we build friendships there, and we... we, Relate to them, right? We we build relationships with these people. We submit affectionately. One component of friendship, of course, is the sharing of affections. And what is it that gives me joy or grief? What is it that causes me to celebrate or mourn? Right. Um, and First Corinthians twelve would would say if 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 uh, one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one member suffers, all suffer together. So I sit my submit my affections. We submit financially. Um, Paul, for instance, says, now I, concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up, as he may prosper, so there's no collecting when I come. We, we submit ourselves vocationally, and, and what that means is I, I recognize that um, my job lasts for a little while, but my relationships with these people at church lasts forever. And so... Wow. Um, I might, I might make uh, what I love at my churches. Some people have turned jobs down because their jobs required them to gather on to, to to work on Sunday, not because I'm a Sabbatarian, but because they say that's when the church gathers. That's when my my, my dinners around the my family's around the dinner table. I can't miss dinner with the family. Were you kidding me? No way, I won't take that. Right. I, I know lawyers who have moved from high-powered firms to. Uh, more obscure firms just because it was demanding too much and they weren't able to serve at the church. Very un-American. I'm going to go down the career ladder instead of up it so I can serve my family and church. We submit ourselves ethically. That's seventh, meaning meaning I'm, I'm going to submit myself to the corrections and rebukes and warnings and encouragements of my fellow members. And finally, we submit ourselves spiritually, which is to say um, um you know, thinking of Jude 20, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, uh, or First or Corinthians 12, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So I'm, I'm, I'm devoting my prayers and my spiritual gifts to the church. So these are all different ways we, we, we submit, and we sum it up by saying we submit our discipleship and how it plays itself out, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, to the people in, with whom I'm going to make a covenant and who are going to affirm and oversee my faith. 
Does that make the local church an absolute authority? Absolutely not. That's a cult. Um, it is not an absolute authority, but it is a relative mediated authority in the here and now through which I practice my discipleship to Christ. So, you know, let me, let me, let me, let me say it this way. If, if, uh, you know, I claim to be a member of the family, but I never show up at the dinner table. What am I talking about? You know, <laughs> right. uh, the local church, the local church is where we quote unquote put on our membership in the body of Christ, our membership in the universal church. And if I never put it on concretely, I think that calls into question whether or not we really belong to the body of Christ, whether or not we really are a Christian. So if you call yourself a Christian wow. and you never join yourself or submit yourself to a local church, you're like the person who claims to be righteous in Christ but never pursues righteousness. It calls into question wow. your very profession of your very profession of faith. And wow. again, I'm not saying church membership makes you a Christian. I am saying right. it demonstrates. It, it demonstrates. It lives out your claim to be a member of the body of Christ, to be a Christian. Yeah, that's great. I think that's, that is so powerful. And it, it seems also, you know, doing that also, the, the submission and, and all those points you raised, that is also a way God works to, uh, to sanctify us as well. Right. Kind of control oh, us into his, yeah. into his image. No, that's, that's exactly right. That's, that's how Calvin talks about it, for instance, in his chapter on this church. This is, this is where we're going to be sanctified and built up. But I, 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 want, I want to make it a little bit bigger than that, a little bit stronger than that. It's not just don't go to church just because I'm going to get sanctified. Well, that's true, and I want to emphasize that, and I'm gl- glad you brought it up. I, I also want to say I go to church because that's what I am, a member of the body of Christ. These are my brothers and sisters. So it, it goes to it goes to the very identity we have as believers. Amen. Oh, I love that. And, and you're right. It's it's baffling. You get and I know you know Christians like this who they're they 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 want no nothing to do with the nothing to do with the church. They don't want their family part of the church. Uh, they'd rather just sit at home and teach their family themselves. And uh, you know I tell them, look, you you know God is given you guys gifts that you can bring to the body and there's things uh, in the body that you guys need from others and it's it's just it's just plain disobedience is what it is to not be part of the local church and that's just flat out yeah what do you is. i mean what do you think of, of what do you think of an absentee father you know the, the, the kid after a lunch, uh, after a while says you're not my dad I know yeah. the birth certificate says you're my dad, but you're not my dad. You've never been there. You left. You abandoned us. Yeah, it, it should not be like that, right? Yeah. And so, you know, obviously, to some extent, a person who never attends a church could, in principle, be a Christian. But at best, they're in disobedience. Um, very likely, they're not a Christian at all. If you're never joined to a church, local church, that's not a safe place to be. Yeah, amen. How church membership defines uh, love. How do you respond to that? Yeah, um, it's 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 in our practice. See, uh, our our world, 
uh, I, I, I talked about that in, 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 in a couple of books. One, uh, The Church and the Surprising Offense, a little short, handy one I, uh, I, I hope is useful to people called Church Membership, How the World Does Who Represents Jesus. Um, uh, I, I'm setting it against how our culture thinks of love. In our culture, we understand love to be a matter of self-expression and self-fulfillment. So if you, I know you love, me, you love me, if you let me become all that I am, and we understand love very consumeristically. Um, whereas in the Bible, love is holy, right? It, it seeks holiness. Um, uh, uh, um, just thinking about, you know, I, I love you if you, I know that you love me if you keep my commandments, Jesus says in, in John and, and as well as in his epistle. Um, do not say you love God if you do not love your brother. If you claim to love God but hate your brother, you're a liar, right? And it's as we love one another in the context of the local church, and I'm talking about a committed holiness-pursuing love, which we're committed to one another and keep one another accountable. It says we love one another like that, we show the world what his love is like. Right? Uh, the, the, the world loves very differently, and it expects very different kind of love. Um, John fifteen thirteen: greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so it's in the context of the local church where we practice laying down our lives for one another. Or John fourteen fifteen: if you love me, Keep my commands, right? Uh, or, or, or this, and uh, wonderfully, John thirteen thirty four and thirty five. A new command I give you: love one another, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's really interesting, isn't it? H- how will the world know we are his disciples? By our love for them? Well, that's true, but that's not what he says here. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So as my fellow church members and I love each other, we define love for the world. Parents who spoil their children call love, not what Hollywood calls love, not what um, two homosexual men call love, but what Jesus calls love, holiness pursuing obedient love and that's what we do in the context of the local church and its membership very good I think that's so important to uh, kind of flush that out and and really have a clear definition of love because especially in today's age it is um, you know a lot of of people are are willing to completely compromise on the issue of uh, whether it's whether it's homosexuality or whatever, uh, in the name of love, thinking that they're doing it uh, because they love the person and love is this, you know, acceptance of all things. Uh, so it is, it is vitally important to get that uh, biblical view of love right. Well, there's there's an irony in which, yeah, love is the ultimate justifier. Love is, in a sense, an idol in our culture. It's not that God is love. It's more that love is God. Right, so you can justify anything these days by calling it loving. Now we don't go before the Creator of the universe and say, "God in heaven, you tell us what love is, what what love demands, what love requires." Uh, rather, we go before God in heaven and say, "Love demands this. You need to conform, and don't tell me I have to give this up, or that will be unloving of you." 
So we define love very much in our own terms and not in the terms of God's holiness. And so, yeah, right. it becomes a very pious-sounding idol and uh, justifies anything and everything that we want it to. So, yeah, That's in, in context of the life that. of the church, context of life of the church we, we need to preach and teach and think about, okay, what is love in the Bible? And what we'll find is that God and Jesus talk about love differently than we do in the uh, postmodern West. That's, that's right. Absolutely. Well, so one of the things, you know, that uh, we do on the show, really one of the main focuses is uh, Christian apologetics. And uh, I've read a lot of your stuff, but I, I don't know if I'm really kind of your, your view on apologetics. Um, you know, what is uh, Frank Turek, for example, with, with cross-examined ministries, um, says uh, 75% of, of Young people brought up in a Christian home, first year of college, uh, three out of four of them walk away from the faith. And uh, me and my wife are missionaries with a ministry called uh, Ratio Christi, which is uh, an apologetics ministry on the the college campus. And we really see this. We we talk to a lot of college students, and, um, you know, they go to college the first year, and they're being told science has, has destroyed God and can't trust the Bible, etc. And a lot of times in the churches that they've been in, they've never heard of apologetics. Uh, this this kind of was like how I grew up. My father was a pastor, um, and I didn't I didn't know anything about apologetics until I was in my twenties. I didn't even know there was such a thing. So, kind um, of, how do you roll see the role? of apologetics, would you say it's one of the marks of a healthy church or a subset in one of those nine marks? Or Yeah, sure. I mean, apologetics is not listed as one of the explicit nine marks. We, 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 the first mark is expositional preaching, the preaching of God's word. The second mark is biblical theology, which is, you might say, a, a right understanding, putting your Bible together rightly. And then the third mark is a, a biblical understanding of the gospel, biblical evangelism. You know, I would say I would say apologetics uh, is 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 a, a part of doing all of those things, right? If I'm if I'm going to be doing expositional preaching, there's going to be a component of defending the faith through careful exposing of the text. Uh, Biblical wow. theology, what I call the second mark, yeah, is putting my Bible together in a way that's that's coherent and um, uh, clear and compelling, and makes an argument, an apology for the faith. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I think apologetics is is an important part of 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 uh, a healthy church, and we're, we're, we're to be ready to give it an answer. You know, uh, on any occasion in which in which we're confronted about, about the claims of the faith, so so I do think that's important. Uh, I, I also want to say one of the most powerful apologetics we have is again the life of the church. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So we're thinking about the passages in Matthew five or First Peter two. We're talking about seeing our good deeds and giving glory to the Father in heaven. Don't hide your man. Um, your faith under a bowl, or uh, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? You might as well throw it out. So I, I think, I typically when we talk about apologetics, we're talking about making statements or 
or, or, or verbal defenses of the faith, I think that's critical. I think also critical is, is the life that we live together as believers, which is sort of a backdrop to those verbal arguments. So don't, right. don't make those verbal arguments if, if behind, behind you uh, is, is a picture of Christians that are backbiting and gossiping and slandering and sleeping around and, and, and living no difference in the world. You're going you're to undermine, cheapen uh, your apologetic argument. Uh, so you know, I'm going to argue for a both and here. Give me the argument yeah. and give me the life behind those arguments that commend the faith. Very good. For for those Christian apologists that, um, you know, I, just, I know a lot of them, they'll be in the church and uh, they, they want to get apologetics somehow into the church. And uh, sometimes the pastors are just not, they're not open to it. I don't know for whatever reasons. Maybe they have good reasons for it. I don't know. Uh, but sometimes these, you know, uh, Christians, uh, the apologists will get um, very frustrated, uh, angry, critical, etc. What would you say to those um, kind of Christian apologists who are in that boat where they're they're trying to be part of the local church, they're trying to use their gifts, um, but it doesn't always seem as though the pastor wants to um, use them in the church? I know, I know a lot of guys like this. Yeah, sure. It's a great question. And I, I'd say a couple of things. First, first, I mean, I, I share your frustration. If, if in fact, a, a pastor is saying, oh, yeah, look, apologetics is not important, I don't think that's true. I think it is important. So in our church, yeah. since we, we offer a series of Sunday school classes on different topics, and one of them is apologetics, because we want to equip our members with knowing how to do um, um, apologetics well. In fact, if you go to capitalhillbaptist.org, and, and click on resources and click on course seminars, you'll see all of our Sunday school class curriculums. You can download the entire curriculum for our apologetics course. Again, capitalhillbaptist.org, click on resources, wow. click on course seminars, and you can see exactly what we teach, for instance. Um, it's a 13-week, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's a seven-week class with manuscripts and handouts right there on the website for you for free. Um, okay, but Wonderful. the person themselves, I would, I would say, um, and I would say this: if you're gifted, if you think your gift and your interest and your strength is apologetics, if you think it is, if it's music, if it's if it's evangelism, if it's teaching, if it's uh, childcare, I don't care. Um, slow down. Let the church get to know you. Let them test you. Let them affirm your character. Uh, let them affirm mm-hmm. that you know uh, you're working in a godly way. Um, build relationships. Uh, invite criticism, invite feedback. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't trust, for as pro-apologetics as I am, if, if you showed up in my church and, it, you know, became a member in month one, you're saying, Pastor, you got to let me do this. I'd say, no, <laughs> yeah. hold, hold, hold on. We're, we're a right. team here, and there's different needs in the body. You know, you know what? Right now we actually need more people working in child care. Would you, would you be willing to help us out in child care for a little while? That's not my gift. Right. Well, yeah, but but that's that's where we have need right now. And uh, the Philippians too, consider the needs of others better than your own. Look to their interests, not your own. Look, I I, I trust God has gifted you in those ways, but uh, right now this is where the body has need, and and 
you know, right. so in, in time, yeah, if the Lord has gifted you and if we trust you, you're, you're going to grow in those opportunities. Absolutely, if those are your strengths. They'll just kind of show themselves. But don't show up telling me you took a spiritual gift test and kind of demanding that we follow yeah. your path. So I, I would say maturity is needed on both sides. Churches need to to uh, practice apologetics, but then those of us entering churches as, as individual members, whatever our gifts are, need to submit them to the care and the instruction of the church. Amen. Yeah, an apologist sometimes, you know, uh, got a reputation for being a little arrogant and sometimes prideful, and uh, there's a need to to uh, do which we talk about with the submission and uh, just uh-huh. trust in those whom God has, has, has put over us and uh, and that. So very good. Uh, any any concluding thoughts here as we kind of wrap up the the interview? Any concluding thoughts on? church membership, and then maybe you can uh, talk if you got a uh, website or blog or, uh, again, maybe mention some of your books where people can, can go would be great. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, go to 9marks.org, number9marks.org to, to see a lot, if you're a church leader especially, uh, a lot of resources we have on this topic and, and, and a number of others. Uh, my little book, Church Membership, um, how the world knows who represents Jesus from Crossway is, is just a short little primer on this topic. Um, I, I, another one you might find useful that I wrote is called Understanding the Congregation's Authority. Um, a larger book I wrote called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, which asks some of these larger cultural issues and, and, and understanding love in the context of our culture. That's, that's a bigger, beefier book, I have to warn you. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to have you. you know, I'd the, love to have you. Uh, back on down the road to talk about that book. Uh, but the bottom line is, well, if you're not a member of a church, join one. Don't look around for the perfect church. Don't say to me, oh, Jonathan, if you knew the church is in my area, well, the churches might be looking at you and say, if I knew you. <laughs> look, look the right. church, churches are filled with sinners and we're sinners. Let's, let's link arm as sinners, forgive one another in grace, and, and help one another uh, uh, better follow Jesus. If, 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 if you're not working to help others follow Jesus, and I'm not sure what you mean when you say you follow Jesus, uh, a part of being a Christian is, is helping, is linking arms with other Christians and helping them to follow Jesus. So if you're not a member of a church, join one, one where the word is faithfully preached, one where the gospel is clearly proclaimed week after week, one that takes care and is interested in the lives of its members, uh, their holiness and their love, and, and, and helping one another get to heaven. That, 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 I think, would be my final word. Amen. And uh, so thankful for the ministry of you guys. Uh, my pastor, uh, Dave Keen, has uh, done a lot of stuff with you guys, and uh, he's done such a great job at Park Baptist and uh, just just really blessed to have him, blessed to have uh, the ministry of Nine Marks, and I'd uh, love to have you on again in the future, and really, really do appreciate you coming on and, and giving us your time. Great. Good to be here. Thank you so much. God bless. Yep, bye-bye. All right, folks, uh, we'll be back again next week, and uh, we're going to continue our series on the church. And actually, we'll be playing a, probably a, 
uh, a rebroadcast from my pastor who was on, uh, and we, we looked at some of the nine marks. Um, I had I'd had my phone muted for the first hour, uh, and I didn't realize that. And that was uh, that was some of the, the problems we heard with the uh, at the very beginning of the interview there, where you could hear Jonathan, but you couldn't hear anybody else. Um, I had somehow muted my phone and uh, spent the last hour going through a, an article on uh, five reasons the church needs apologetics and all that. Uh, was basically for my edification because uh, no one else heard it. So anyway, uh, folks, join us again next week. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview with uh, Jonathan Lehman. Uh, literally, this this guy is uh, just a brilliant, brilliant mind. Uh, I cannot recommend highly enough uh, the, the the Nine Marks books. They've got several of the they, they, what they did is they took the nine marks, uh, expositional preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, biblical understanding of conversion, etc., these, these things, and have turned them into little books. And uh, you, can, you can read these little books dealing with, uh, with the nine marks, and it's just fantastic. So be sure to uh, check out the nine marks ministry. Uh, get Dr. Lehman's books. They're, they're, all of them are fantastic. I've got all of his books. And, um, you know, folks, I really can't stress enough, uh, get in a local church. You know, that is so important, so important to be part of a local body, so important to be under the discipleship and the care of good pastor and elders, as well as in covenant with good, faithful uh, men and women of God. Uh, you know we're we're so blessed where I'm at to uh, to have such a, a great pastor and and just a great church. So uh, if you're not in a local church, join a local church. If you're in the Rock Hill area, come check out uh, Park Baptist, and uh, we'd love to meet you and greet you and uh, get to know you better. So next week we will be back. We'll be playing an episode that uh, was recorded earlier. With my pastor going through the nine marks, Pastor Dave Keene. And so we'll be doing that. And then we'll be back the following week uh, again, uh, addressing some of these important issues. So appreciate you guys. God bless and have a great week.